Is it possible to have ethical standards which govern our behavior in the marketplace? This was 2002, uh, in the midst of kind of Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco. There was a CEO of the company who had charges brought against him related to his personal tax situation, which basically led to the uncovering of a major fraud, a theft of $600 million by the CFO and the CEO. We have a business model in this country which is just heartbreakingly uh, unethical. We really do live in an age of obsessive individualism. Corporate executives go in to see how much money they can make out of a corporation rather than what that corporation can do. When you lose a sense of trust, market economies fail. Market economies rely upon an ethical structure. But the market also require, both requires and nurtures another set of virtues. Uh, it requires the virtue of service. It requires the virtue of hard work and discipline and diligence. Uh, it requires the, the, the virtue of creativity and innovation. If you're only thinking in cost-benefit, then I think what you're doing is you're reducing the business merely to its profit-making element. But as Peter Drucker says, the goal of a business is to create a customer. And the goal, and, and the goal of a manager is not merely to make profit, but to create sustainable value. The historic classical model that we follow in the West is one that cares deeply about producing products and services that are of benefit to the public, that takes care of its working force, that invests back in the community in which it resides. This whole idea of being rooted in the community, this whole idea about caring about the people that helped you rise up the corporate ladder, those are good models. That's what we have to, that's, that's what we have to honor that. Doing the right things, that's what makes you happy. So you do good things by having a good business, and you do good things by giving back in a proper way to a good community. Maybe it's the answer, which is that at the top of these enterprises, you need virtuous people. Of course. You need, and there's the no bottom. way around it. That, that the system itself will not, by itself, by its natural financial incentives, generate virtue. But you know what? To produce such people, there's only one institution that can really do it well. The institution of the family. Right. It's the family, religion, you know, culture. This is what has to be transformed. And, and when we transform that, then a market on economy can flourish because free societies require free people. And the market cannot create free people. Can government actually be the instrument of justice, of good, of human flourishing? To start the discussion, we hear again from one of our own panelists, our co-host Chuck Colson. Just before I left the White House, the President sent me on a uh, mission to visit the Soviet Union. We were locked into a, uh, a very, very difficult situation with the Soviets. The President had been there in 1972 in the spring, had set up a strategic arms agreement, I ended up in the Kremlin one afternoon uh, negotiating with Vasily Kuznetsov, who was the hardline Soviet negotiator. And we sat at one of those long tables with all the Americans on one side and all the Soviets on the other side, uh, and went for about two hours. Uh, this guy was really tough, and he kept saying to me, pound the table, and say, Mr. Colson, you come here and you're trying to interfere with our domestic affairs. And I kept countering him. I kept saying, no, human rights aren't domestic affairs. You, you don't give human rights to people in the government, and you can't take them away. Uh, human rights are God-given. All of a sudden, he hit the table. He said, okay, Mr. Colson, you can tell your president we'll do our part. And as a result of that, within 
days thereafter, they released 35,000 Soviet Jews. But what I learned out of that was that the unique contribution that America makes to the world, and it is unique, is to promote the idea that people are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. This is the fundamental ethic on which the Western civilization was built. The first task of government is to kind of create um, order and secure rights and liberty, and then the second task is to restrain the governors. And no notice that we are willing to criticize our government. Americans are willing to criticize our government even when they are engaged in actions that, uh, that protect us uh, against aggressors when they use force that's not morally justified. Government must be under the moral law. I mean, you have people say, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, of course, that's what law is. It's the legislation of morality, right? And it's rooted in a moral order. And if the government violates those rights, then it's wrong. Government also has a role in promoting virtue among the citizens. Our founders, men like Washington and Adams and Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson, bequeathed to us uh, a wonderful system. It's a system that encourages deliberation and thinking and argument and persuasion before we vote. Good ethics can make a difference in public affairs in terms of how we live as a society. I believe at the root of what it is that makes us good and just and decent is a recognition that we owe a debt to those who have gone before us. Am I doing what's right? Am I doing what I could do for other people? Those other people who, like me, are made in the image and likeness of God. We've got time now, of course, for a panel discussion. I want to reintroduce uh, everyone briefly, just so you know. You already know who Chuck is, uh, David Nagel, John Stone Street. Where is he? There he is. John uh, Donovan Campbell. There he is. Uh, David Stevens. And uh, we've got Kelly Shackelford with us. Kelly is the president and CEO of the Liberty Institute. We also have Bill Peel. Where's Bill? Bill. A director of the Letourneau University Center for Faith and Work, and then finally Todd Wagner, who I believe is some sort of pastor. Is that right, Todd? <laughs> so you're ordained? Are you ordained or just a freelance? You're freelance. Um, anyway, thank you for letting us borrow your church, and thanks for opening up the bathrooms because to have to go to that construction site, that's just not right. Um, well, uh, where do we begin? Um, I wanted to begin uh, the conversation, first of all, by asking uh, Chuck Colson. Chuck, where do you get the idea for this? I mean, this is sort of a general idea you've had forever, but to actually do this series, this six-part video series, what was the provenance of that idea? Or was there one? Did it just bubble up? Well, it came to me that uh, once I was able to convince the Templeton Foundation to do this so that it would be really top-draw quality, and that took about two years working with them. Uh, I had the dream of doing this years ago because I saw it as a way we as a church, we as Christian people, 
could take language that the world would understand and be able to teach ethics and moral reformation and the uh, cultivation of virtue to society. So uh, I guess a couple of us got together, Robbie George at Princeton and I, who hosts this thing, spent some hours together sort of outlining it, and I really think God gave us the structure. We signed a contract with a great firm to produce this, Coldwater Media, and I said to them, the one thing I can't do, I don't have time to write the script, and the script's the big thing. So they said, okay, we'll get a script writer. And they went all over America trying to find somebody who had done a script on virtue and uh, ethics. And there is none. It's not being taught. They came back to me and they said, we can't find anybody who wants to bid on the contract. So I ended up cutting my schedule really tight for about two and a half months and wrote the script. And then it really, uh, it filmed itself. It was amazing. When we finished the filming at Princeton, which was two days, very intense, three, four hours of filming a day, over two days, 40 students who sat glued to their chairs. They were riveted. And they were picked at random. And uh, when we finished it, I thought it was a, I, I didn't like it. It was all disjointed. And Britt Hume said to me, now, Chuck, stay out of the editing process. <laughs> he said, you've got good editors here, and you'll be amazed what they can do. And they put together a really, really good product. This flows from point to point. Everybody's been reviewed by focus groups. Everybody loves it. So that's the genesis, and it's really God, it's a God thing, uh, completely. It, and it's, it's an effort on my part at this age of my life. I, Washington Post did an article about me recently said I'm trying to clone myself and, and uh, teach centurions, people who can follow my footsteps. And I, I see guys like Todd Wagner and, who really get this stuff, young men, and Donovan, really young men, who gets it. And so I see this as being a tool that could do that and draw in a lot of other people and be used widely. And what we want you to do today, and I'm going to say this at the very end, I'll say it again now, what we want you to do today is not just buy it and watch it for your own entertainment, but use it. Get people into this. Get your pastor into this. Get, get your school into this. This thing applies right across the board to many areas of life. Thank you. Um, yes. Don't applaud unless you're actually going to purchase this thing. Um, that's ethical. Um, I, b before, uh, before I ask a big, uh, a big question and throw it out to everybody here, I want to uh, ask if the three uh, gentlemen who've just joined us and from whom we haven't yet heard uh, maybe have just uh, a word or two they, they want to share. Mark, I don't know if, um, I'm sorry, Todd, Kelly, and Bill, uh, if you just have a, a word. You don't have to, but I just, since he, we haven't yet heard from you. So I will just briefly say this. I, I thought my greatest contribution to the panel would be to shut up so that I don't have to quote the guys that are on the panel. Right. That being said, I'll just throw this out because we are meeting in a church and we are uh, here. I think what Chuck did was brilliant in the way that they produced this in such a way that it could be accepted in secular universities where there is uh, not going to be a subscription to the tenets of, of, the, of the scriptures. Right. But uh, that being said... Today, I would just like to just remind us of our challenge as believers that are here talking about this ethic. I think that the greatest problem in America today, one of the things I share often, I think the greatest evil in America today is not a corrupt political system, it's not a fall in Wall Street, it is not even foreign enemies. The greatest evil in America today is the dead, irrelevant, weak, placid church. 
And so for us, for us to sit and to, it's really what Donovan said, I can sit and moan about all the problems that are out there, I can step up and lead, I can give my life. And I want to say to the church, you have that which will be used by God to preserve the society, redeem the society. Chuck talked about the fact that just five million, you know, a small two percent can make a significant difference. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah, God did for one righteous man is what it came down to. And so for, for the church everywhere to prevail, it must prevail where you are. And so this is not about getting other people to understand this. It starts right here with this room. This is the first 500 of the 5 million. For us to get serious about reading the fine work of these men, to go to Chuck's website, the material is there to become a student of it, to engage your neighbor over your backyard fence, to have relationships with people where you curry uh, some relational trust with them that you can speak with wisdom into these things, to carry forward this. This is not a conference where we go unimpressed by great giants. This is a place for us to go and be trained. Christ's model of discipleship, it's slow, but it changes things. And so we don't know if it's going to take us the 20, 30 years it took Wilberforce. All we need to do is be faithful today. God will take care of tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is the ethic. That is the salve. That is the hope. And you are the men. You are the women. Thank you. The one, the one thing I would say is um, I started doing work, uh, religious freedom, fighting in the courts, legislature, etc., 22 years ago. And when I think about the things that I'm having to do now, that I'm having to defend now, that I could have never conceived I would have to defend. I mean, back then, the thought of having to defend a church, I, that was bizarre. Every week now we're defending churches who are just trying to be the church, just trying to minister and people want to shut them down. Um, National Day of Prayers under attack. We were at the Supreme Court last year over whether a cross had to be torn down because it was on government property. It was a veterans memorial. I mean, I could go on and on, but I just want to say, boy, is there a need for this? Um, something seriously has happened, and I've seen it just from my work. But I want to flip the other side too, and is I see something else incredible in my work every day, and that is one person standing up, doing the right thing, and everything changes around them. They change the whole system. Yeah. And it's usually another 15, 20, 100 people that refuse to do anything about it, but then one person stands. And so I just say that as an encouragement. Uh, the truth is really powerful. I know sometimes I'm on programs and there's four liberals in me. And my little phrase I always keep in my mind is the truth can't be outnumbered. Uh, the darkness is always penetrated by the light. So I just re I'm really thankful that you're doing this. And uh, I pray that this uh, redeems our culture in ways we can't even imagine. Thank you. And Bill? Thanks, Eric. As, uh, as I have listened to what has gone on today, I am taken by the fact that this, these messages have to be taken into the workplace. Uh, it is easy for us to talk about these issues in the church, yet it's the, the workplace is the place where the values of America are set. And unless we take this message out there and begin to live, and Christians begin to live ethically distinctive lives there, I don't think we're going to make very much difference. And we can talk about this all day long in the church. There is a huge gap between what happens on Sunday morning and what happens on Monday morning. And that's a real worldview problem here. In Dallas, 
Most of the people that we know have this instinctive feel of what's right and wrong. Uh, they don't need to know, know the what as much as they have to have, John, as you were talking about, the motivation. And if they somehow have the idea that God doesn't care about the workplace that much, that it's all about Sunday and not what happens about Monday, uh, and they're on their own out there, then we're in some ways throwing them to the dogs as far as ethical matters are concerned. We have got to move this out uh, beyond you know, the church house and get into the workplace. Thank you. Well, this all brings up so many questions. Um, I, um, of course, uh, thinking about what, you know, cultural Christianity versus an actual relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, you know, that's uh, everywhere you look, um, this comes up over and over and over. Uh, the, having just written the book on Bonhoeffer, it's the, it's the very picture of how the Nazis won in Germany. Because if you have people who are culturally Christian, that's even better than having pagans. Because pagans know that they're not Christians. Cultural Christians think they're Christians, and that's the worst thing uh, in the world. And I think that's part of, um, well, that is exactly where we are uh, today. So the, the big question I want to throw out uh, to the panel, probably mostly Chuck, but uh, everybody can weigh in on this, is uh, in a sense, how did we get here? And uh, uh, what I mean by that is I think that, uh, well, I think, I know that the very idea of America uh, has been lost. What it, what it means to be an American, this idea that we have to be self-governing, that we have to police ourselves, that we have to have uh, religion and morality bubbling up from the small platoons, uh, to quote Burke, to, that, we, that this has to come from us, and that if it doesn't come from us, genuinely it's impossible uh, to govern ourselves. Uh, but somehow that idea, it, it seems to me, has been lost, uh, it's been lost in my time. Uh, I grew up uh, mainly in the 70s. This was not taught. And if you're not teaching this to people in America, that they have to do this for themselves, then somehow it, it doesn't get done. Um, and I, I think ultimately that's what's brought us to this place. We don't understand that this is vital, that you can't have democracy, you can't have a responsible free market. You can't really have any of these things unless you have a moral populace, to quote, who was it, Adams? I can't remember, Madison. Um, so I guess the question that I want to throw out is, how do you all think we got here that, that this idea, which is a venerable idea, that we need to teach ethics, we need to train virtue, um, how, how is it that that idea has fallen out of favor? How is it possible that we now have to revisit this idea in the way that we're visiting it? Where, where did we go wrong? Maybe you know the rise of existentialism. I mean, the changes... In the 60s, the, which is often called the slum of a decade, correctly, <laughs> the 60s, we imported a lot of ideas from uh, the French and the Germans, uh, demand, deconstruction of ideas, and there was a ass wholesale assault on authority. Yeah. And there was a rejection of the notion that somebody can tell us how to live our lives. And there was this yeah. passion for personal autonomy. Life has no meaning, God is dead, therefore live for the moment, and nobody can tell me what to do with my life. Now most of the professors who, uh, I loved uh, Davy's little poem, most of the professors are the dropouts of the 60s who were smart and uh, went back and got a graduate degree, but they're still dropouts of the 60s, and they're all, they're all the professors, tenured professors today. You go to a college campus today, you're taught basically some of the very radical ideas 
which invaded our culture in the 60s. Mm. The second thing is, everything in our culture is aimed, because, largely because of the media, at the fact that we all have an entitlement to something. We're not entitled to anything, except the dignity of our human lives. That's all we're entitled to. Uh, Tocqueville famously warned when he came to the United States, he said, greatest society ever created, churches are what make it so great, but he said, if the people ever get to the point where they're depending on the government to make them happy, you will have tyranny. And that's what we've got. Because everything's about us, what we can get, uh, then we expect the government to do it for us, and the government ends up taking our power away. I'm gonna, my last words are going to be to answer the question I asked at the beginning. Can you have freedom without virtue flourishing? I'll come back to that. But Davey, you want to add to that? Now we got here? I have a thought on that, actually. I think it's what we saw in the 60s and 70s, the unmooring from absolute truth, is nothing that new in human history, which is why the first commandment is the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what we saw was what humans do, which was we decided to worship something other than the real God. And in this case, it was really anything we wanted to worship. So the, the 60s, are, in my opinion, or the unmooring from truth, are the symptom of the root cause, which is idolatry. We've decided to worship something other than the real God. And everyone has a God, whether you want to admit it or not. And a great way to determine that is just write down where you spend your time and where you spend your money, and then you will figure out what you worship. So it's entirely possible that what we saw in the 60s is nothing all that new, which is why God gives us the first commandment. None of it is right on in a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> I would add one, one additional thought, perhaps, and that is, um, kind of a, from a historical perspective, the rise of science uh, and the rise of science conceived in purely naturalistic terms led famously to what has been called in the 20th century the fact-value dichotomy. Science gives us facts. Yes. Everything else is more or less empty, non-cognitive, person-relative values. And so the rise of modern science conceived in naturalistic terms has driven a huge wedge between any kind of fact-based value system. Therefore, what do values or ethics become? They become non-cognitive, as I was quoting from Gilbert Harmon earlier, or what is called emotivism. Uh, that is, uh, ethics are really expressions of tastes, personal tastes or emotions. And so I think in terms of the, the drift of contemporary history, whether he and that's what's called logical positivism as well, uh, back in the early 20th, earlier part of the 20th century, that that is one of the things that has actually, on the ground, led to our, our, our moral quantum. It is an expression of idolatry, to be sure. Davy uh, is absolutely right in what he just said. Uh, and it's the phoniest distinction ever created by anyone, deliberately by the naturalist. Only what we can empirically prove can be true. Nothing else can be true. Well... Donovan says what holds a platoon together, marine platoon together in combat is love. He's right. You love your brother and he loves you and that's how you stay alive. That can't be empirically proved, but the results can be. And I believe that the physical order which is empirically provable and valid, the law of gravity is, can be proved. I believe moral laws can be proved as well. 
because they had predictable consequences which are unvarying. And so I've always argued, and I've got a chart, I spent an hour doing this with, I see a lot of centurions in the room, and Bill Peel's a centurion. I spent about an hour showing a chart of how you can prove the moral order is true. And you approve it by the results, and you look at what's rational and what isn't rational, and it's just every bit as provable. It simply won't be accepted by scientists, and doesn't get peer-reviewed at Harvard. But the fact of the matter is, it is absolutely demonstrable. So don't fall for that phony argument. It is a phony argument. You know, the, the thing that, that their facts out there are true. I remember starting residency, and they stood up and said, half of what we treat you is not true. The trouble is we don't know which half. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm 30 years out of my residency, and they were right. I mean, things back there was this is science, this is what you do with patients. Now is exactly the opposite of what you want to do. And so the fact that science has a corner on truth, even in the sense of, of a fact, is not true. You know, there's, there's another angle to this question or another depth to this question because, you know, David's here identified some of the thinkers, but, you know, most people have never read those thinkers. So the question is, how do these ideas become normal? Culture is just essentially whatever's normal for any group of people, and sometimes what's normal ought not be normal, and so our question isn't, this is where the ideas came from, and, and we've got to trace those. Then the other question is, how did that, back, that, that fact value idea become the way that we actually think about the world? Uh, Lewis has this great line, you may have noticed we like C.S. Lewis here. Um, Lewis has this great line where he said the most dangerous ideas in a society aren't the ones that are argued, they're the ones that are assumed. And Schaefer identified this kind of line of despair where ideas start in the universities, uh, intellectuals, they go to the universities, they go to high culture, they go to pop culture, and then they go to us. And, and that's the other level of this, is that you know, some of these ideas of the 60s and 70s, uh, because, and even, even before that, 40s and 50s, because the church pulled out of the universities, because the church pulled out of the workplace in terms of you know, creating the secular sacred dichotomy, then it allowed those megaphones of the intellectuals to become the megaphones of culture. And so to work this backwards, you know, there's a real need to, for the church then to infiltrate culture again. Um, in other words, uh, loving my neighbor, uh, if we can put it in these terms, loving my neighbor means I need to love my neighbor, my actual personal neighbor. But it also means that I need to love my neighbor by creating a cultural context or engaging a cultural context in which they can have the best life possible, a life of virtue and courage and, 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 and what we might call human flourishing. And so the, the, uh, American Christianity tends to be so individualistic that we, we forget what Oz Guinness calls the sociology of knowledge. In other words, the cultural forces that make these ideas believable. I mean, you know, you know it's not believable in a Marine Corps to think that there is no absolute truth. You know? It just doesn't make sense. Um, but it is believable on day-to-day -day culture. So dealing with those larger cultural realities and, and bringing this idea of virtue back in. And, and I know I'm rambling here. Let me throw one more thing in. Chuck said at the beginning of this that he was, he was ex excited about the fact that this is using language that the culture can accept. And I agree with that. I think it actually goes better, better than that. Because I think it's language that can be reintroduced to the culture that it's forgotten mm -hmm. in a way that it can accept. Does that make sense? 
And, and the church needs to be about creating cultural artifacts, language, words, things like that, that create this believability about the right things and unbelievability about the wrong things, if that makes, makes any sense. Yeah, I, I, Eric, I'll just throw in real quickly. I mean, I think, again, as a church, one of the mistakes the church started to make, John, even in an effort to do that, is they've, they've sought to be so creative and compelling in the creativity that creativity almost got exalted over truth. In yeah. fact, there's a very great recent example of one of the most creative young pastors, so to speak, in America, who has been creative in uh, not just delivering truth, but recently even in defining it, which is a real problem. The, the, you know, the scripture says that he who despises the word will be in debt to it. And I think that at the end of the day, Eric, is the answer to your question, is that uh, we have become a country without chess. We have all worn our own magnets. The, the compasses have all pointed back to us. I intentionally use metaphors that have been thrown out here today to show that they're not just metaphors. When you look at the problem, even in different societies, let's just use ancient Israel, when God confronted them and he's looking for a man in Ezekiel 22 to stand in the gap, he said there's nobody, but he started with the princesses, the princes and the princesses, but the princes specifically, the prophets and the priests, and then he says there's no people. Well, that's the reason that we have no princes, especially in a democracy, a democratic republic. We're the one who say we want you to rule us. And we want folks who will rule us, who will give us permission to keep wearing our own magnets. And what has happened is that we are in debt to our own enslavement. We have chosen our own apples, so to speak, because we have rejected the first premise. That there's a God that is good. He cares for us. He loves us. He's not looking to rip us off. He's looking to set us free. It's the truth that will do that. And he lets us scoff at truth. But like it says in the scripture, uh, he who uh, scoffs at truth, he alone must bear it. And so we're just bearing it. What our job is, is to make compelling, clear, concise uh, arguments for that truth in a way that people understand that there is a factual basis to it, which Chuck just said. Let me just show you. Ideas have consequences. We are experiencing consequences from our ideas. So let's discuss if there are better ideas. And then we have the lab of our first part of our country, though there were many ideas there that had negative consequences, see slavery, that needed to be abolished. But there are other things now. We have made ourselves our own slaves because we've made ourselves our own masters. And when you're your own master, you will live under tyranny because you are not essentially good. Amen. Wow. Uh, to have all these panelists up here is kind of an embarrassment of riches. I just want everybody to keep talking. Um, uh, there, there is so much here. I do feel it's an odd thing. It, you can use whatever metaphor you want, but it's kind of like the last exit before the toll. That's where I'm from, up in New York. I don't know if you have that here. The last exit, when you see that sign, I kind of feel that um, things go along, along, and then you realize, um, you, you begin to see things. I mean, you see what's going on in Europe and Greece and so, so on and so forth. You realize that this can't work anymore, right? We thought it might work, but now we have proof that it can't work. And I think we're seeing that uh, in this country on a number of levels. We're almost getting blessed by how bad it is because it's, it's, a, it's a time to, to, um, to assess the situation and say, okay, we were drifting and drifting, but suddenly we realize if we drift further, we're going over the falls and we can't climb back up the falls. So we, we better do something now. Uh, th that's what I feel that this is uh, all about, uh, that it's, uh, it's a time to understand that we can't continue in this direction and we need to make a course correction. And that's to me exactly what this doing the right thing uh, exploration of ethics is about, that uh, God is giving us an opportunity. I feel the same way about the Manhattan Declaration. How many folks here know about the Manhattan Declaration? All right, wow, very good, very good. See, Chuck, it's getting out there. Um, 
the, um, the Manhattan Declaration, it's the same kind of thing, and I'm always embarrassed to say this, because we, but it's, it's very much like the Barman Declaration with Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church. You understand now is the time to draw a line and to hold the line and to die on this line. This is it. If we don't die on this line, uh, we're not going to live to fight another day. The, the battle is now. Uh, that's, that's kind of how I feel w- with all of this. And I think that when you realize that... Uh, what Christians believe in America is now literally, and I'm, forgive me for, for speaking in such shorthand, but it's literally being outlawed. The, the kind of stuff that was unimaginable, Chuck uh, alluded to this earlier, t- 20 years ago, the gay rights lobby uh, is, is now making it uh, impossible to hold orthodox Christian views on sexuality. We've never been here before. I think we have all uh, intuited that we're drifting in this direction. Maybe someday in my grandchild's generation we'll get there. But there's no question that we're there now. And that that's exactly um, why we've got to get really serious. We have to get serious right now. And I'm not an alarmist, believe me, but we really do. So uh, in just in the last few minutes that we have together, I, I, if, if anybody uh, has anything that they want to say along those lines, but about the timing of it, of where we are in our culture and what our opportunities are to turn things around. I've got to say one thing on that subject because it's so crucial. Every time the church has been in this position, in modern times, not historically. Historically, when the church has been put in the position that we're in today, on the defensive, it has fought back. Whether it was the monastic movement that went to the shores of Ireland and saved Western civilization from barbarism, or whether it was the 19th century in England, the Victorian era, which John was talking about, the church has fought back. But in modern times, what the church has done is go into its shell. In the 20th century, the, the fundamentalist church withdrew and had nothing to do with the rest of culture. We're going to be faced with a question, one first question. Who is going to lead this country and this time that we're in, in the area of moral reformation? Colleges? Newspapers? Hollywood? It's not going to happen. If not us, no one will. Yeah. So the church has to not fall for the temptation. And I hear it today. I go all over the place. I talk to all kinds of pastors, all famous names, all the people you know. I talk to them all the time. Some of them say to me, well, the battle's really over. Why are you spending all your time fighting this? Battle can never be over for us, ever. And if we withdraw back into the shell right now, it's all lost. It's lost. This culture's lost. And we created this culture. This culture was created by the Judeo-Christian revelation. Clearly, in every respect, the work ethic, free free democratic governments, the rule of law was lex rex out of the Reformation. Everything about this country, the whole idea of freedom being... Listen, the most radical doctrine ever introduced in Western civilization was when the Jews and the Greeks came out of the Middle East and invaded the Greco-Roman Empire and said the most radical thing possible. All human beings are created in the image of God. Do you know what that meant to the Greeks, all of whom had slaves? Meant, and and none of, no one who was not in power, position of power and influence in education could vote. There was, they talk about Athenian democracy. There wasn't democracy. No wonder the Christians were persecuted. In Rome, the women had no stature of any kind. And the, women, and the Christians came in and said, all human beings are created in the image of God. That's the most radical doctrine ever. We are radicals in that sense. And we better get radical again and activist, because if we're not activist, we're going to lose it all.
All of them. I have just one brief thing to say here, and that is, you know, th those of us who are interested in the, in the realm of ideas, sometimes I think it's possible for us to, when, when we're out with people that believe something that is really different than we are, to, to make them personal opponents rather than ideological opponents. And I think it's real important that when we go forth from this place, we begin to see these things that need to change and be addressed, that we see people that believe differently than we are, than we do, as people that are victims of the enemy rather than the enemy themselves. And th I think that's really critical for people to even listen to us to begin with, uh, because if they feel like we're attacking them, which unfortunately... Christians have been in that situation. They need to know that we struggle with these ethical dilemmas ourselves, that we fail to meet up with them, that we're not judging them. We are judging their system of determining what's right and wrong. And that's going to change. That's a great point. That's what David Nogel was saying about love. I love what Martin Luther King said, he whom you would change, he, he whom you would change, you must first love. And you look at the letters from Birmingham jail, he had every reason to be furious. He was up against worse opposition than we are with, say, the gay rights movement. But he never criticized them. Just express the truth lovingly to people who don't get... Ron Greer. Is Ron Greer here? Ron Greer is... Yeah, there he is. Graduate of... Uh, he's a former Marine as well. Semper Fi. Uh, great guy. Got out, of the, got out of the Marine Corps, went to jail, hated white people had a phenomenal conversion, has been running a church up in Madison, Wisconsin. I, can you imagine the Republic of Madison, Wisconsin? <laughs> Where all the Wisconsin follies are going on today. And Ron was conducting a service, and the gay rights activists burst in and threw condoms at the altar, and the press were all there. They'd all been alerted it was a fix. And Ron stood there smiling the whole time. The press went up to him and said, why aren't you angry at them? And he said, I've got no more reason to be angry with them than I would at a blind man stepping on my foot. Mm. That's the right answer, Ron. Thank God. Well, uh, in the interest of time, we're going to have to shut things down. Maybe just a brief comment uh, from Kelly. Yeah, um, I would add one thing uh, that's kind of been implied in this, but Ron's a good example of this, is uh, while our manner needs to be love, there really is a call for courage. Uh, and your example, Eric, of what you gave with the, uh, the homosexual activist movement, their whole methodology is intimidation to try to, to, to scare people into silence. I just got back from the UK with a barrister friend of mine who just lost the case. You might have heard about it. We're now uh, foster parents, are not allowed to be foster parents in the UK if they have traditional Christian beliefs about homosexuality. Because you have to promote that with children. And, uh, the whole atmosphere is an intimidation atmosphere to be silent. And uh, so I think it's very important that while our manner, has, and this is a tough, you know, combination, uh, but uh, we have to be loving, but we really need courage uh, in the body of Christ to stand up, to be counted, to stand for what is true, even if we're alone, but to do so in love and in grace. Amen. No, Thank you. I, I, just on this one thing, there's a great story uh, about Niemöller, right? During that whole situation that was going on in Germany when he was imprisoned because he had courage. 
and, and he was enslaved because he was no longer uh, pouring forth the miasma of the Nazi regime. And there was a young pastoral intern that was walking through the cells. Right? I think, Chuck, I read this in one of your books. And, uh, and, and he came up and he was surprised to see Nemo, this giant of the faith in there. And he said, Pastor Nemo, what are you doing in there? And Nemo looked back at him and said, no, my son, what are you doing out there? And, and, and I think it's a great place for us to leave today because I, I, if you're out there thinking, what are you doing up there, guys? We'd say, no, what are, what are you doing out there? You are a panel. You realize that today. We leave here today and you are the panel that most of the world is going to rub up against. And if you aren't in that chair, if you're not faithful, if you're not ready, I would say, why are you not on that panel? So jump in with us. Um, thank you, uh, Todd. Uh, we're going to have a closing uh, comment uh, from Chuck, and then I will close us uh, in prayer. Uh, but before we hear from Chuck, finally, how about a big round of applause for all of our panelists and participants this morning. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is our last session together, and I simply want to say thank you for being here, for being such a great audience. This is the same thing we experienced at Biola and Berkeley. Nobody left. Everybody stayed the four hours. It's an engaging subject. What I don't want you to do is walk out of here and say, boy, was that an interesting morning. I want you to walk out of here and say, I'm going to take this product, which is being offered through many Christian organizations. We invited everybody in. We said to the Truth Project, we said to Focus, we said to InnoVarsity, we said to Christian Businessmen, CEO Forum, to everybody. You can buy it at the same price we can buy it, and you can sell it through your constituencies. They all said, why would you do that? I said, because we're not trying to make money. We want this thing shown. So the best thing you can do is use your spheres of influence to get this. Now, you'll see packets. I mean, we've got all kinds of things out at the table. You can order it now. You'll have it delivered within three weeks, and you can start using it. Those are pre-production pre-release copies, but all of this effort is to get this kind of message spread, and the church can't retreat. Don't retreat. This is the wrong time. This is the time for us, and courage is a great word. You know, nobody, nobody dealt with the virtues today. The classic virtues of the Greeks are prudence, uh, temperance, uh, justice, and courage. <laughs> And then three Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity. But of all those virtues, they're worthless without courage. Because you can be prudent, but if you don't have the courage to act on your prudent beliefs, it's worthless. So we need the courage today. We need men with chests who are willing to stand up to this society and this world lovingly and saying, look, there's a better way. We're not imposing our views on anyone. We are proposing that you come to the wedding feast, that you enjoy the benefits of what a Christian worldview provides for society and historically has provided and will continue to provide. Let me just say one thing. I asked you a question at the beginning. Can freedom survive without virtue flourishing? I can't imagine that that question hasn't been answered in your minds by what you've heard today. Michael Novak says, if you have virtue in a society and virtuous behavior, you have 300 million policemen. 
If you don't have virtue, you can't hire enough policemen. But what happens without virtue is what we've seen in the wake of 2008. The government expands to take care of what we're not doing because of our lack of virtue. So what are you going out here today with? A charge, of course, to advance the Great Commission, a charge, of course, to fulfill the Cultural Commission, a charge, of course, to be Christians, but to have the courage to live out that virtue in such a way that you begin to change the world around you. Because if you don't, we will, in a very short period of time, in the culture in which we live, lose our freedom. Nothing less than that is at stake. God bless you. Thank you, Chuck. Um, it's painful to, to cut this off because this is just, uh, it's a delight. Uh, but here's the good news. Uh, this doesn't have to end here. In a sense, the whole point of this morning is to begin a conversation. Uh, it is now, frankly, up to you to continue this conversation. The point of this is not to sell a product. The point of this is to change the culture and to change the world. Uh, that's why we're here. I, I think you can see the hearts uh, of, of the men here, that this is, this is not a game. This is not just a, a simple presentation. This is about what God has put on our hearts. And there are a lot of godly men here this morning sharing their hearts. I, I think you can sense that. I, I really do hope um, you'll take this uh, seriously. I do hope you'll turn in uh, the advance order forms and do this uh, in your churches. I know Todd will do it here because this is ground zero. Did I make that clear? Yes. <laughs> It's not, it's not Berkeley, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, sorry. Um, but um, also, please uh, visit uh, the Doing the Right Thing page on Facebook, uh, or you can go to the colsoncenter.org slash ethics. I want to thank, uh, again, our co-hosts, Breakpoint, the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, KCBI-FM, Letourneau University Center for Faith and Work, and the Liberty Institute, as well as the many volunteers who have made this possible this morning. Uh, and all of our uh, panelists and speakers, and let me just close us with a prayer. Before you do that, yes. I apologize. I'm going to be leaving here as soon as this is over, uh, because I'll tell you how important I think this is. I, my wife unexpectedly had open heart surgery exactly two weeks ago yesterday. I've been with her night and day in the rehab center and in the hospital, and both of us agreed Thursday that it was important I leave, even though I hated to leave her side. But I've got a 310 flight, which will get me home so I can be with it tonight. So I apologize for leaving early. Thank you for those who have been praying for us. It's been a tough time in the Colson family because we, we had no idea this was coming. But I felt this whole thing about launching this is so important that I had to come and be here with you today. So thank you. Uh, yes, and actually I neglected to say that pastors and donors and others who are going to this uh, special luncheon, uh, as soon as we stop here after my prayer, please go to the loft. I assume you all know where that is. Sounds like it's on another floor. The loft. I'm just guessing. Okay. Um, so let me close us with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord God, that you have called us to be your church, those who are called out into this world, Lord, uh, to bring healing and restoration and redemption, Lord. You have called us to be salt and light in our generation. Father God, I pray by your grace that you would pour out faith and courage such that we would live out what it is 
to be your church, the people that you have called uh, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the things in this world that it is your will to do in this world, Lord God. We are here now. We hear you, Lord God, with our ears. We pray that we would hear you in our inner man and that we would begin to sense you moving us in this direction, that we would clearly feel that we are part of the solution, that you are using us, your church. We pray, Father God, that your church would be the church, Lord God, that we would not be cultural Christians, but that we would understand this is life and death. Uh, This is about truth. This is about the very things, Lord God, uh, that reflect your image. Father, we ask you to deputize us this morning to do these things, Lord God, to be your agents of change in this world. Father, without you, we can do nothing. And we ask you, Lord God, to empower us, to deputize us, to bless us, to anoint us, to be your servants, to be your church in this age. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.